Welcome to the Mindspace Podcast. I'm Joe Flanders. Thanks for tuning in. So psychedelics are slowly re-entering Western societies. And as far as I could tell, it's really just a matter of time and research and regulatory processes before we begin to see their full impact. What's not super clear to me at this point is just what the magnitude of this impact will be. I can see mental health clinics providing psychedelic treatments for a range of indications. I could see psychedelics being used more broadly to help people struggling with stress in their life, difficult adjustments, maybe even end-of-life distress. I can even imagine psychedelic therapies being delivered by regulated professionals in retreat centers and spas with carefully designed set and settings, a little bit like getting a massage at a spa that most of us do or some of us do regularly. It can kind of be like a cross between a psychotherapy session and a Nordic bath experience, for example. And I genuinely think this will help people heal and collectively will become more well. It's harder for me to imagine the broader impact, um, something deeper or more transformational than that, even though there are many people who do believe there is a deeper transformation coming in our way of life, in our relationships, how we organize society. My guest on the Mindspace podcast today is Dr. Devin Christie, and she believes psychedelics have the potential to transform medicine. And she is definitely smart enough, educated enough, and experienced enough to really know what she's talking about here. So Devin is a family physician with a focused practice in multidisciplinary pain management. She's also a clinical instructor with the UBC Department of Medicine, Kundalini yoga instructor, mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher, relational somatic therapist, MDMA-assisted and ketamine-assisted psychotherapist. And finally, she is my dear colleague at Numinous, where she acts as a special advisor on psychedelic programs and training. Our conversation covered how Devin got into psychedelic medicine in the first place and why she believes there's so much promise in this field, the psychedelic paradigm shift in medicine, healing mechanisms in psychedelic therapies, the role of neuroplasticity, mindfulness, the default mode network, and mystical experiences in healing, why Devin believes somatic relational therapy is an ideal approach for psychedelics, Uh, some profound insights from a near-death experience that she had, her own healing journey, recovering from chronic pain, traumatic brain injury, and PTSD, and how psychedelics can change the world and some of the risks along the way. I really enjoyed this conversation with Devin. It's rare to find someone who can be as broad and as deep as she is in this space. And so I hope uh, you enjoyed as much as I did. Here we go. Devin Christie, welcome to the Mindspace Podcast. Thanks, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. How's the day so far? You know, it's a rainy day here in Vancouver, uh, which I also acknowledge is the traditional territories of the Musqueam, the Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. And yeah, just so feeling grateful to reside here and grateful for the rain. I have a mural outside my building that says no rain, no flowers. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. So it's a typical October morning in Vancouver. <laughs> nice. Um, so lots to talk to you about. Um, feeling really grateful to have you on the show here because I don't know that many people that can go as deep and as wide 
um, on psychedelics and, and related fields um, and actually other things that we, uh, other interests that we have in common. So I'm just really excited about this and grateful that you can, that you can make the time um, and just a ton to ask you about. And uh, why don't we just dive in? Is that okay? Yeah, let's do it. I'm looking forward to our conversation and the opportunity to do this with you, Joe. Cool. Cool. <clears throat> All right. So um, let's start with the kind of more generic opening. Like um, what, what do you do um, professionally these days? Mm-hmm. Well, these days I spend my time between uh, working at a chronic pain clinic here called Change Pain, where I see patients who struggle with, with chronic pain, a lot of trauma, a lot of mental health uh, overlays. Um, and uh, that's my clinical practice as an MD. And then the rest of my time, we're working together uh, with Numinous. And um, my current role is the senior lead of psychedelic programs. So a lot of input on the development of our psychedelic programs, as well as the um, foundations for uh, bringing therapists in and uh, training therapists in the competencies around delivery of psychedelic therapy, all the things I'm, I'm really passionate about. And then very soon also, um, participating clinically here in Vancouver through our ketamine assisted psychotherapy program that we've, we've been working on together. So super excited for that. I'm going to, um, just acknowledge your humility here, um, in kind of not mentioning a number of the other talents and, and, you know, aspects of your background. I think what, what listeners should know is that you're also a therapist and a mindfulness teacher. Um, maybe can you just briefly tell us about the background on those two? Totally. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of been a natural progression over the years, right? I, I entered medicine with this view that medicine is powerful and is the dominant system of healthcare uh, in our in our country, and um, and yet it wasn't necessarily serving uh, everyone, including myself, optimally in my view. And um, so went through, became a family doctor. And then once I was through my training, I kind of got to training and other things that I feel are really important to be incorporating in tangible ways into what our healthcare system offers uh, people. So, um, you know, I was one of these early adopters of yoga. I was uh, by fluke, uh, by grace, really. I started practicing yoga when I was very young, 17, at the time when there was one person broadcasting it on public PBS, Lilius Follin. The, the show was called Lilius Yoga and You. <laughs> she had a shag carpet <laughs> and a big long braid and a leotard. And I did it diligently every day before school, um, which was this sort of precursor to an internal transformation. I've spoken about this publicly. You know, I suffered at that time with both both anorexia, bulimia, some depression, and and that's why I say it's a grace. I found yoga because it kind of got me on a path, a path of coming back into myself, into my body, um, and even on a spiritual path and finding myself, you know, and I spent the rest of the decades of my life on that path. And so once becoming a doctor, it was like, well, I really need to find a a way to bring that that lens to people because it certainly helped me. And then I became aware of the John Kabat-Zinn's work and 
the actual evidence behind the mindfulness-based stress reduction program and that it was being taught and certifications uh, offered through leading institutions. So that I thought, ah, that's it. Um, I want to train in that. And um, so then began offering mindfulness through that program and with such satisfaction too, because the much like psychedelics, which we'll, we'll talk about more, uh, but it, the, the power of mindfulness-based approaches to empower people to observe their, their inner process, their world, to, to have a potentially quite drastically new self-awareness, um, you know, like meta-awareness of, of, you know, witness and thoughts, thoughts not necessarily being who I am that I don't, I don't even have to believe all my thoughts and, and oh, wow, I can relate to myself and the world differently. And then how does that translate into change and greater well-being? And when people got, you know, got that, it was like, that's probably the most powerful thing I can do as a doctor. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's such a drastic departure from come to me and I'll prescribe you stuff that you'll take that'll kind of make your symptoms more tolerable or something. Um, Recognizing that in family medicine, you know, most of what we see is chronic illness, things like chronic pain and things that, you know, where medicine shines is emergency medicine care, right? Like, and uh, acute management of things. And of course, surgeries when they're needed and, and that. So, so yes, I, I'm, I, uh, the mindfulness piece has been really important. And then I also came across uh, trauma work. And it just added this other perspective. It added a recognition that um, through like this psychobiological understanding of the stress response and our survival response and the types of states that that creates when we've had adversity and um, overwhelming experiences um, and how that can uh, be present and be excruciatingly uncomfortable. And then you ask somebody to sit and just pay attention to their experience. And if that's what's on repeat, it may not actually be the most skillful thing to, to support people. And so that kind of led to, well, I need to investigate trauma and trauma healing and how to be more skillful in that. Um, and it sort of coincided with discovering the work of maps and the work with MDMA and PTSD. And I was so inspired by that, that that also fueled me to become a therapist. Um, so I did a two-year certification in relational somatic therapy, which is a very much a trauma-informed approach, very much understanding our nervous system and how it interacts with our emotions, psychology, and behaviors. So yeah, there's definitely those those two elements as well. Thanks, Joe, for um, <laughs> going a little deeper there. <laughs> no problem. And I actually want to go even deeper a little bit later. Um, wanted to ask you about how you got into the, the psychedelic field. And I think you just answered that. So, which is great. Um, I'd like to kind of broaden out a little bit and talk about psychedelics generally, and then hopefully steer us towards some more, maybe a little inside baseball on <laughs> the work that we're doing and, and like, you know, just getting into the weeds of the expertise that you have and um, that we're, trying to bring to 
to the community uh, of people that uh, want to be healed through these modalities. Um, yeah. Before so, we do that, though, I please. will say there I got tipped onto psychedelics before I found out about MAPS MDMA work, and that was through Gabor. Mm. So. I went yes. to a conference called Spirit Plant Medicine, and it was at UBC. I saw a little ad for it in a local magazine, and Gabor was actually one of the humans, physicians, that kept me going through medical school because I thought, oh, I read When the Body Says No when I was a, a medical student. And I thought, oh, my goodness, okay, there's, a, there's an MD out there who's put things mm -hmm. together this way. He recognizes that mind and body are not separate, and um, so of course I signed up to go hear him talk. And mm -hmm. then I, got, I arrived at this conference and he was talking about his work with ayahuasca with, uh, people with substance use disorder. And I was like, Iowa, what, <laughs> how did I not know about this? <laughs> uh -huh. And so that was just, you know, also just peeled back, you know, opened up a whole avenue of, I'm a very curious person by nature. So, um, that really kind of got me interested and, shortly thereafter learned about the work of maps too. Hmm. Yeah. And were you doing psychedelics diligently in the mornings before school as well? Or? <laughs> no. <laughs> 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 yeah, that was, I mean, I have certainly had my personal exploration since that time and my goodness, how grateful I am. I mean, to, to be alive at a time when, um, you know, these, these trailheads and pathways are, are even opportunities to, to explore and to find kind of safe pathways to, to do that. And, um, like with ayahuasca, for example, I, I traveled down with Gabor to Yalapa, Mexico and, um, really learned sort of sitting beside him how he facilitates the work and prepares people and helps people integrate their experiences and had my own deep experiences, um, in that setting. And, um, yeah, it's been hugely informative and also deeply healing, like layers and layers of healing of un mm -hmm. and understanding. Yeah. Cool. I'm glad you mentioned Gabor because, uh, as you know, he was on the Mindspace podcast as well. And um, obviously, just a powerhouse of a human and lots of very important ideas that are seem to be having their moment right now, which is cool. But also Absolutely. raised a bunch of questions for me that... Um, Maybe we can get into if we have time today. Cool. Um, okay. Um, so I think you've you've touched on this, but maybe we can just take it again in case there's more you want to say about it. But I think you and I both believe that psychedelics have the potential to bring about very, very meaningful change in our healthcare systems, maybe even more broadly than that. Why do you think there's so much promise here uh, in mental health or maybe even health more broadly? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of ways I could go in answering that question. Yeah. I mean, the, the first thing that comes up is just this notion of a paradigm shift where, in my view, what psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy proposes is that... Uh, we can have the intention of uh, helping individuals to heal, you know, to mm -hmm. deeply heal from mental health conditions, from, um, you know, chronic illness, and that the location of that healing is inside them 
you know, we talk about this concept of an inner healer, inner healer or innate healing intelligence um, as part of preparation of people going into these experiences to trust that that's there and to allow that to guide the process. And that as, as therapists and guides, we're, we're holding space for that, the location of healing to be intrinsic to that person. And I mean, of course that is true. Like you cut yourself and then you keep the conditions clean and dry and your cells know how to knit themselves back together, right? There is an intelligence there. But I think what our our broader system has sort of um, conditioned us into uh, perceiving is that uh, we need to be fixed somehow by external um, people or 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 modalities or um, surgeries or drugs, um, people that know more than us. And there's this almost um, not like a victim, but there's just less empowerment. I yeah, think more in that passive perspective, or something. it's much more passive. Yeah. And I think, um, the way our system is set up is, 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 is it almost kind of encourages that. Uh, so, so it's this active, you're the source of healing. We're going to create, um, the optimal conditions, do our best to do that. And um, so that that to me is really powerful, empowering, and I think will lead to a lot of um, support for motivation and health behavior change. And um, so that's, you know, just one aspect of the paradigm shift. Another is, as I mentioned, with respect to how much I respect Gabor and his work is just this breaking, (laughs) quitting this this view that comes from uh, biological reductionism that you know the the mind and the body are separate and that it's all like western medicine is very materialistic and there's a lot of benefit from that we've learned so much i mean it's amazing how much we understand our cellular biology and and uh it, yet it sort of it parses things apart and creates you know silos of of specialties for example where this doctor treats this system and this doctor treats this system and it's all very focused on the physical um so there's all these kind of discrete uh categorizations and and people get many different diagnoses and go to see many different specialists for each of those separate things Yet, when you really zoom out and take this um, more systems approach, which I actually didn't mention as well, I'm certified functional medicine practitioner, which is a systems biology view. It's like, actually, no, it's, it's all interconnected. We're alive ecosystems and mind and body are absolutely intricately, simultaneously co-arising. They can't be separated. You know, I have a thought that thought is producing chemicals that are influencing my state, you know, so, um, so I really see that psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is going to um, really support this awareness of the, um, that, that approaches that are targeting our emotional well-being and our nervous system regulation and our, our mental, what we, what we term mental well-being will translate into physical, like positive physical outcomes. 
because we know, and this is again in Gabor's work, stress is just this common or the stress response is this common underlying factor between a multiplicity of different expressions of illness, whether we call them mental or physical. So I'm really excited for for that and for the ways that um, as we continue to research different applications of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy that we're going to see and learn um, how much more broadly this type of intervention may be applicable. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the, the final tag on to that is to actually support more systemic uh, funding for psychotherapy in general, you know, psychedelics aside, right? We already have evidence for that. We already know that if people have access to psychotherapy, they visit their family physician less. You know, there's um, psychotherapy is, uh, as opposed to pharmacotherapy for mental illness is um, the research shows that it likely has much longer term benefits is um, more impact on quality of life for people rather than just symptom management and that people prefer it and there's less side effects. So even if psychedelic assisted psychotherapy can also just usher this change in our system to bring parity to approaches that support individuals mental well-being, um, that would be a win in my perspective. All right. Um, I don't know if this is going to land, but we'll, we'll give it a shot. What do you say to people that maybe hold a more traditional view of physical health? And they listen mm-hmm. to you and they say, oh, Devin, she's so lovely, but like she's got this pie in the sky naive view that's like, if we all just feel better, we'll all be well, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what do you say to people like that who aren't convinced, as convinced of the, the evidence that you're seeing? Yeah, I mean, I, I do my best to articulate in plain language the the rationale, you know, that's based in science, right? I mean, science is one lens, but it's definitely the lens of truth that the dominant culture and our society um, really trusts. So yeah, people may not have an understanding because there's so much science that doesn't trickle down and make it through um, to the awareness of healthcare providers even, never mind the general population. Um, so that's where, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time. I work in chronic pain, right? People mm-hmm. present with physical mm-hmm. pain. And my role is to help them understand and not push them to understand, but to skillfully discuss, you know, with the backing of, of the evidence, how, um, how we understand that when we are stuck in a stress reaction cycle, the wear and tear on our system, the the inflammation that's happening in our bodies, the deprioritization of um, things like digestion and, uh, you know, other things that are not on a very evolutionary, you know, survival level important for our immediate survival. We don't need to be digesting our meal well. We need to be running away or fighting something, you know, or, or curling up and and you know, possum, you know, that collapse sort of uh, feigning death to, so the predator might lose interest really. And those are the states our, our nervous system takes us into when we're chronically perceiving threat. And in our modern day, you can't different our our system, those parts of our brain doesn't differentiate between a saber tooth tiger or 
you know, the, the interpersonal conflict with our, our boss or the person who's cutting us off in traffic, right? We're, it's the same biological cascades that are going on. So it's a matter of trying to articulate things clearly, trying to give examples and then helping people to, to see for themselves. And again, that's, I think, where the mindfulness approach, Joe, mm-hmm. has been so powerful, as I'm sure you would um, agree, is, is really mm-hmm. just giving people tools to see for themselves. Like, don't believe me. Mm-hmm. Try this mm-hmm. and see if it results in greater well-being for yeah. you. Yep. Um, because the data, the evidence, all that stuff is all well and good. But until people experientially know something as opposed to rationally know something, you know, can, you can rationally take something in, but still have all kind of arguments against it. And, and it's, it's much more powerful when embodied. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So there's psychedelics are so interesting. They're so bizarre in so many ways and, and can, um, kind of elicit so many different kinds of experiences. They're used in so many different kinds of ways. And I'm, fascinated by the the literature that is slowly maturing um and that's just investigating the mechanisms or like what the hell's going on when we take a psychedelic and Mm -hmm. how it could be helpful in reducing depression or helping someone get over ptsd or something like that Mm -hmm. so i'd love to hear um your best guess right now on mechanisms and i know that you you know we've spent a lot of time talking about psychological flexibility and neuroplasticity, which as far as I could tell is sort of like the dominant model right now. Um, Can you just sort of explain that, um, what that uh, model is and, and how do you think that um, it it can lead to greater well-being? Mm -hmm. Thanks. Yeah. I find this whole topic Mm -hmm. fascinating as well. Um, And I feel really grateful for the work that's being done in the field of trying to understand what's going on. And I think a lot of um, theories um, that have some weight to them are coming through functional magnetic resonance imaging research, a lot that's been spearheaded by Dr. Robin Carthart Harris. um, And that is, you know, expanding, you know, we're seeing more and more um, higher institutions opening up departments of, of psychedelic uh, investigation and, and using tools like fMRI to see what's happening in the brain. And for the listeners that don't know what that what that is, it's it functional magnetic resonance imaging is like having an MRI, but instead of a static picture, which is in one point in time, you're actually watching the brain on that level over time, and um, you're able to see what parts of the brain are connecting, what parts of the brain are disconnecting. And we can also compare, you know, under a state like psychedelics versus healthy normals, ordinary state of consciousness, what the sort of um, mathematically computated uh, trends in difference in state are, are happening in, in all these different networks. So it's like a network understanding of our brain. And so, um, So I think that's lending a lot. And what it's showing is when we're um, under the effect of a classical psychedelic or even there's now been some, um, which is like psilocybin, LSD, DMT, um, 
there's also been some uh, investigation now into um, entactogen like MDMA, which is not a classical psychedelic, but there's similarities. I think a lot of it is coming from the classical psychedelic um, research. There are a multiplicity of new possible connections that happen. You know, we're seeing increased uh, connections across the hemispheres of the brain and increased connections within the hemispheres of the brain. And um, the listeners and you've probably seen, you know, this little diagram representation. There's two circles beside each other. And one sort of depicts our usual ordinary state of consciousness where the connections happening in our brain are the ones that have been highly conditioned over our lifetime, right? It's our learned way of thinking, paying attention of how our actual brain is operating, the connections that we're making, and, which informs how we perceive our biases, everything. And then the, the circle beside that is much more colorful with way more lines, <laughs> you know, all across, which is representing this state uh, with a psychedelic, a classical psychedelic um, on board. And um, so one of the, Dr. Carthard Harris, who I referenced, he talks about um, the rebus model, uh, which is relaxed beliefs under psychedelics and also the entropic brain model and even primary uh, states of consciousness model. And, um, you know, to summarize, it's like that first circle with our well-rehearsed patterns is, um, you know, where there's a lot of weight in our daily lives to that. It's very hard. You know, learning is uncomfortable because to learn, we have to make new neural connections. So you try learning like an instrument or something. It's like, ugh, you feel uncomfortable and it's getting over that hump of learning something new. It's, it's hard to start making those trailheads to wire new pathways in, in our brain. Whereas when the psychedelic is on board, all of a sudden those new pathways become um, quite easily accessed in the moment. And those heavily weighted priors all of a sudden don't have so much weight anymore. And where in the past those heavily weighted ways of, of thinking and perceiving would have like a new idea might have just bounced right off of it because they're so strong. It's like that new idea can come in and send ripples and, and, you know, so it's, it's really creating this opportunity to perceive differently. And likely this is what is explaining how it, new insight, like aha kind of insights can emerge in the acute effects of psychedelics um, because all of a sudden these these ways that our brain is, is connected are kind of broken down um, and then there's a new repertoire of connections that are accessible and so so that that can be very powerful right and we also know that um, psychedelics enhance things that promote neuroplasticity um, not only by these sort of functional connective uh, ways, but also, you know, we see evidence of um, synaptic sprouting. So like there's the neuron and the, the synapse is where sort of the, the dendrite and the axon meet. It's where like our nerves connect and it's like a tree. It's like arborized. And in, in depression, for example, the dendrite is actually a little bit like withered, kind of like not as robust of a, of a tree as compared to somebody who doesn't have depression. And then within 24 hours after ketamine 
also a, a, a psychedelic, not a classical one. You, you actually look on an electron microscope at that arborization and it, it, it plumps up. It, it looks almost like normal. So there's this very rapid effect of something going on that's helping with, um, you know, the ability of our, our nerves to connect, our, our nerve cells to connect with each other, to grow new connections. Um, brain-derived neurotrophic factor is increased, BDNF with psychedelics. It's also cr- increased with exercise, with fasting, and with, with other things. Um, so, so that, too, can promote new learning. Um, so that, I think there's, there's multiple mechanisms, yeah. I'm really curious, is the two, those two, I don't know, models or whatever that you just described, is that the same phenomenon playing out at two different levels or are those those two completely different mechanisms? Well, I think it's just, it's a different, it's a different lens. Like one is, I think they're both happening simultaneously, but the, the, the changes in the uh, functional connectivity of the brain on sort of like that higher level in real time. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, that's a very acute effect. Yes. BDNF is happening too. So, so mm-hmm. at the same, at the same time that there's, there's, we know there's these new repertoires of connection available. We also mm-hmm. know that the, uh, c- chemically, there's, there's stuff happening right. that actually can reinforce those new connections or, or right. help that. And that's where the, I mean, we'll talk about this later, I'm sure, but that's mm-hmm. where the very crucial importance of integration comes in. Yes. Because, you know, if you pick up an instrument once and play it a few times, you might get a little better, but then if you put it down and then don't return to it, those new pathways just, they're gone, right? It's, it's what, fires together, wires together is essentially neuroplasticity. You got to keep going down that trail again and again. So where the acute effects of psychedelics can create this profound possibility, it doesn't mean it's going to last. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's, yeah, that's where it behooves us to support individuals to actually meaningfully engage, um, you know, committed actions and uh, in line with the maybe new values that they've clarified through the new insights that they've they've had. Um, so yeah, that's all kind of uh, yeah. some of the mechanisms. There's there's other yeah. elements too, but I'll just pause there. Yeah. So lots to lots to to unpack there. Um, so I think one of the pieces that or or I think what Dr. Carhart Harris showed that I think is a really important um, sort of complement to that way of understanding is that many of the, you know, mental illnesses, let's say for lack of a better phrase, um, what they, what many of them have in common is a kind of rigidity and people feeling Mm -hmm. really stuck. If you think about, you know, someone who's depressed having like just this recurring pattern of like negative thoughts and emotions and, Um, and, you know, PTSD or anxiety being really stuck in, in certain, you know, thought or emotional loops, uh, uh, substance use disorders being stuck in this rigid pattern of behavior. And it's this introduction of new possibilities, new connections, uh, new learning that can kind of break down this rigidity. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think that's, uh, what we mean when we talk about psychological flexibility. So you're introducing, Mm -hmm. Uh, the possibility of new ways of thinking, feeling, and acting um, mm-hmm. with the psychedelic. But of course, uh, 
all we're doing is opening up new possibilities and how someone actualizes those possibilities during a psychedelic experience and after an integration is actually mm-hmm. open for is open to a variety, wide variety, variety of things. Mm-hmm. And so um, this is where the psychotherapy is so important. Set and setting is so important. Mm-hmm. And I think I'll also mention, I'd love to get your, your kind of input on this, that if you are, you know, struggling uh, in your life for whatever reason, and your friend tells you to go down to Peru and do an ayahuasca ceremony, and you don't really know much about it, and you go online and you try to figure some things out, and you get on a plane, you go to some place, and like you have an experience that's very isolating and traumatizing and stuff, mm-hmm. you could be leveraging neuroplasticity in exactly the wrong direction for your well being, mm-hmm. or Absolutely. maybe. Uh, initially the wrong direction and then maybe uh, landing you in the right direction eventually. But um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, this neuroplasticity can be actualized in a variety of different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, how do you think about as a therapist, as a psychedelic therapist, how we're taking advantage of that neuroplasticity? Mm -hmm. You know, I think it really boils down to people having experience of safety And people being, um, you know, adequately prepared for the challenge of psychedelic experiences, you know, um, and, and having a nurturing environment where, you know, you hear recreationally, uh, people talking about bad trips, right? Bad trips from a psychotherapeutic perspective is really just repressed emotional content or maybe traumatic imprints in the, in the body mind, you know, in the nervous system, all of a sudden having the, you know, the valve taken off Uh because of the introduction of this powerful psychoactive drug and without the support to, um, contain, to, um, assist an individual in navigating, those challenging states, absolutely, you know, one could be re-traumatized. One could um, have their, you know, highly conserved negative beliefs about themselves um, very much reinforced. And when you speak to the the ayahuasca example, I mean, I'll, I'll share that my very first ayahuasca experience was um, it opened a lid of what I now understand was implicit shame. Implicit is, um, you know, we've got explicit awareness and explicit memory, which is like ourselves in a narrative in time. This happened then. And, you know, and then the implicit is everything. It's like what's under the iceberg, like under the water, you know, like our, our waking consciousness is the tip. And then there's everything underneath. And, you know, my somatic therapy teacher says the body is the keeper and holder of all information past and present. And that's primarily held in our implicit memory, body based felt sensations that can bleed into the present moment, given whatever factors of our environment are activating of it. But so in in that ayahuasca experience, it was like the the, the effect of the medicine and, and just what was there in me, unexplored or unknown, just opened right up. And my, I tell you, it was not fun. <laughs> it was excruciating. And I actually went away 
from that experience feeling like I shouldn't have been there. I'd done something mm-hmm. wrong. There's mm-hmm. something wrong with me. And that like, there's something wrong with me is the voice of shame. It is, that is the like articulated belief of toxic shame. There's something wrong with me. I'm a piece of garbage. A lot of people walk around in our society with that kind of shame and those kind of implicit uh, beliefs about themselves. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely not a guarantee that if you go and take a powerful medicine like this, you're going to come out on the other side with, with positive outcomes. And that's why it's so important to create um, the, the optimal conditions with skilled people attending with a warm and nurturing environment. You know, when I think about going off to, you know, the Amazon as I did and, uh, you know, it's such a foreign environment in mm-hmm. so many ways, never mind introducing something so powerful into your consciousness. That's even more foreign, uh, experientially. Um, so, so yeah, the, the, to come back to the flexibility piece, um, yeah. the, yes, there's, there's stereotyped, uh, ways of, and patterns of thinking and, and it can be so powerful to break those down, but when not held well, it's, it's like a, it's like any powerful medicine. It's always a double edged sword, right? Mm -hmm. You need to know the risks and you need to be skilled. And, and that's like, there's so many medicines like pharmaceuticals, you know, there's anesthesiologists are the doctors that give haloperidol and other powerful, or or not, sorry, halothane, um, you know, powerful anesthetics, uh, not haloperidol, that's different, but uh, mm-hmm. powerful anesthetics to people where they're actually now in charge of their vital signs for a period of time. Mm-hmm. And and there's special training required to be able to do that because of the risk and because of the responsibility. And I see that absolutely translating uh, to to holding space for psychedelic healing for, mm-hmm. for people. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's talk about ketamine for a second, because mm-hmm. there is a fairly robust practice and tradition of using ketamine to treat depression, PTSD, perhaps especially depression, substance use disorders as well. And it's a, this um, tradition I'm referring to is like a very medical model where the psychedelic uh, experiences that sometimes come up with ketamine are seen as like this unwanted side effect and just sort of, you know, I'll ask patients to sort of ignore that because it's mm-hmm. just this weird side effect. And, you know, it's, it's not what we're interested in is the neuroplasticity that ketamine can induce that has this beneficial effect on your emotional parts of the brain and will and have a powerful antidepressant effects. Mm-hmm. And it's like happening, I don't know if it's at a cellular level or the level of certain networks or whatever. And yep. um, is it not possible that we can create things like neuroplasticity and um, broader connectivity in the brain without needing these big, weird, intense um, experiences with lots of insight and all the meaning making that comes with it? Why, why do we need, you know, what's the point of all this, all this experiential stuff? Can't we just tweak some knobs in the brain and people get on with their lives? Yeah, multiple 
perspectives here. Um, so that is the biological reductionism model, uh, trying to explain, you know, the rapid antidepressant effects of ketamine based on a very mechanistic understanding of what it's doing on a cellular biological level. And it's valid. You know, all of those things are valid um, explanations, but I think that they are only one like slice of the broader understanding of, of what's possible that just isn't accessible to the lens of biological reductionism. That lens needs to expand. Reference paradigm shift we talked about earlier. Um, so, so yeah, you know, when people get a ketamine infusion, on average, you know, 70% of people have quite a powerful reduction in their depressive symptomatology that lasts for about seven days. And then it comes back. And then they have another infusion and another infusion. And, um, you know, from the lens of neuroplasticity, it's great, like make the brain more plastic. And yet, what are the conditions then that you're in with that enhanced plasticity? You know, what is influencing your learning? What is there to help potentially challenge old ways of, of perceiving and reinforce ones that might be um, more beneficial to your long-term well-being? And this is where, um, you know, it's hypothesized that when we add psychotherapy, when we add a rich context to those powerful biological effects, that we might actually see longer benefit. Um, because it's really about enhancing learning. And it's just, it's fascinating to me, you know, there is sort of this uh, sprint happening to find mm -hmm. psychedelics that, you know, yeah. you, you take, a, yeah. it'll, it'll have the same effect in the brain, but take away all these pesky, you know, psychedelic uh, side effects. And, but we, but there's already published literature that, you know, meta analyses that show that the intensity of the actual psychedelic experience, um, that uh, mystical states of consciousness, unitive experiences, um, all of this, the intensity of that is predictive of positive outcome. And what primes a person to have a mystical experience, for example? Well, there's research on that too. And we're learning that having a state of openness and trust going into the experience will influence that, the ability to surrender. And some of those are personality traits, like trait openness, for example. So maybe someone with higher trait openness is going to have a like, more likely uh, to have a mystical experience. Yet psychedelics actually show that they can shift personality constructs People who have psychedelic experiences we see have enduring increases in trait openness after the experiences. So, um, but we can, through preparation and, and what we do skillfully to help people learn, like, well, how do I surrender? You know, and that might look like um, in preparation going, you know, difficult experiences might come up. I'll be right here with you. It's it's can be really helpful to turn towards it, see it as a door to go through, use your diaphragmatic breathing that we've taught if it's bringing up a lot of intensity and, you know, that all of these things to help help people kind of have some tools or some awareness ahead of time to then enter in and with with uh, surrender, with openness um, and. Yeah. And then that really leading to the propensity to have these, um, uh, I guess we would say more positive and less challenging psychedelic experiences, which 
with both, there's still positive outcome, but there's more when um, people really do go to those um, kind of deep uh, mystical states, which also depends on dose too. So um, I really think that, uh, well, even with ketamine, actually, there's been research also that's shown that um, the effectiveness of ketamine for depression is increased by the depth of the trance-like uh, psychedelic state that a person has. So this whole thing about it being a pesky side effect is just, I think it's it's not really informed at this stage, um, but it's a hangover of of just this mm -hmm. dominant way of of sort of understanding and seeing how drugs, how we think drugs work and what side effects are. And I think an overall overarching fear of that that is natural, right? There's the fear of death and there's a the fear of losing your mind, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we are very naturally more comfortable in our ordinary state of consciousness. Non-ordinary states of consciousness are represent the unknown. So does death and also going crazy. You know, those are like the two fundamental fears. So it's natural, I think, for there to be some like pushback against things that put us into states that are not our, our, our status quo as an individual. And then, you know, on a collective level, kind of what it ends up looking like is, you know, not wanting to go to Vietnam and, you know, protesting wars and, you know, the, the, the overarching collective status quo ends up getting questioned when we start um, mm -hmm. expanding beyond the status quo of, of how we're perceiving and, and thinking. So, I don't think, I mean, I, I'll be interested to see where the research mm -hmm. goes, if compounds can be made that have like similar neurobiological effects, but nix out all of the meaning making psychedelic stuff. My hypothesis is it's not really going to go that far or, or the potential will not be as great, but it remains mm -hmm. to be seen. <laughs> right. So I guess you're not going to invest in any companies that are doing drug discovery for this sort of thing. You know, it's interesting because the number of drugs that actually make it all the way through phase three and approval is minuscule. It's like right. probably 1% or less than 1%. So there's all this drug discovery going on right now. But really, like when you look at the stats, how likely is it that any of these are going to really be successful? And we've got drugs that have been used for decades, if not, well, when you're talking about psilocybin, time immemorial right? Acknowledging indigenous use through ceremony as a sacrament for healing, divination, um, in very carefully constructed settings, and in that enriching culture and, and being something very positive and revered in societies, tr in traditional societies that have incorporated um, psychedelics in, in, their, in their culture. So, um, yeah, I, I I think we we've got LSD. I mean, it would be nice if LSD was not ten hours, twelve hours long. If somebody could mm -hmm. cut that in half, that would probably be <laughs> beneficial. Though, you know, with psilocybin, six to eight hours, I think that it actually there's there's companies that are trying to make a psilocybin that is actually like two to three hours in duration of effect. Or even if they tried to do that with MDMA, for example, to like shorten the effect. My my perception is actually that the depth of healing that happens over an eight hour session all day 
within the context of two therapists with a client is so profound. And it actually, I think, will lead to inefficiencies if you shorten it to like Mm -hmm. three hour sessions, but then have to have more of them. Mm -hmm. So, again, Mm -hmm. it remains to be seen, but it's all all fascinating to me. (laughs) Right. I think you're touching on something that I think is often lost in all of the, you know, more superficial media hype around psychedelics, um, that psychedelics are going to sort of like help us address the mental health crisis in our society or change the world in some deeper way. Um, they're just a tool or a catalyst, right? Mm -hmm. And it all depends on what we do with them. And I really Mm -hmm. think that that's a message that we can't say enough actually, because, um, it's, I think it's misunderstood and, um, Yeah. yeah. And hopefully more and more experts like yourself, um, can continue to speak that message in a compelling way. Mm -hmm. Um, so with, with these models and the sort of understanding in hand, I want to get to the, some of the, the stranger or more, I don't know, interesting aspects of psychedelics. And so you mentioned earlier, well, wait, can, that, we just, can we, please, sorry, Joe, can we please, just, talk, go for it. just, just elaborate on the point that you just made? Because please. I, I want to just reinforce it because it is yep. so important. I think it's something we feel super aligned around, which is psychedelics like mindfulness are not mm-hmm. a panacea. I think, mm-hmm. you know, there's such suffering and desperation that people want to believe in panaceas. And um, I think it is, you know, yes, they're a tool. We do need innovative treatments. We we do need better treatments for severe mental health conditions. And certainly there's a lot of promise there for psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Yet part of what the dominant, this is another paradigm shift, part of what the dominant system does Western medicine is it individualizes illness. It puts the Mm -hmm. illness in the individual without this broader recognition or, you know, um, understanding that translates into any sort of action in medicine that individuals are living in a toxic culture and that, which is the title of Gabor's new book, which I can't wait to read Mm -hmm. when it comes out next year. Mm-hmm. Um, that there are so many ills on a societal level that come from a lot of the isms, <laughs> you know, like, like greed and fear and capitalism and competition and, um, you know, the social determinants of health, poverty, you know, all these things, inequities, oppression, the soup that we're swimming in right now to individualize that onto a person is like your you're sick, not like the broader system is sick, is um, participating in oppression. And so my hope is that psychedelics as a tool and as a powerful treatment can not only assist in individuals finding their own healing, but also to a broader um, awareness and recognition of what we need to do what our obligations are what for people in 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 government and you know decision makers in our society to address inequity to address lack of access to mental health services to address all these other things that that are are so much of a part of the suffering of individuals um so and 
you know, we do know that psychedelics help us to feel more connected with one with one another, to have this like more broader understanding of our interconnectedness and our interdependence. So I, I do think, you know, that there's promise there as individuals more and more um, really in a, in, again, embodied way, have that understanding that together collectively we're going to continue to advocate for these broader changes that are necessary for our collective health, which is also the health of our planet, our precious planet, which we don't need to dive into detail, but, you know, we're in a crisis right now. Um, mass extinctions and, you know, polar ice caps melting and all of that. There's a lot of, I think, what psychedelics might bring to climate grief and and how we face that collectively, that, that are potentials there. But I just, yeah, wanted to really highlight your point about not a panacea and not just to the individual. There's mm-hmm. there's much more broader healing right. that needs to happen. Let's let's um let's pursue this a little bit. I, I wanted to ask you this later, but we can get into it now. Um, mm-hmm. To me, there's this interesting gap between this a little bit more granular analysis of how psychedelics can help someone with depression, for example, mm-hmm. and then this much bigger, broader, in ways more inspiring way of thinking that psychedelics can actually help us heal collectively or help us find a way to deal with climate change or, or, or social justice or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the link? H- mm-hmm. How do we get from this you know, mental health focus to uh, these broader considerations? And is it actually a little risky to... Um, to get our hopes up or to accelerate on psychedelics before they're regulated and, and um, thoughtfully integrated back into our society. Mm-hmm. I think that again, I referenced the level of desperation and suffering. There's a lot of mm-hmm. risk in the, the hype around it right now because mm-hmm. it's taking us a little bit to establish regulated, you know, safe settings Um for, for people to um, engage with this type of work um, in a healthcare setting. I mean, I'm not, my expertise is not on recreational contexts or spiritual contexts or anything. I, I'll, I'll refrain from commenting on that. Um, so yeah, of course there's, there's risk. Um, yet, you know, the, I think it's David Hawkins he wrote a book called letting go and a few others. And I remember I wrote down this quotation that personal healing emerges collective healing and this kind of notion that we are microcosms as part of a macrocosm, but it's holographic. And even when you drill down, drill down to activities on the cellular level, you can see those activities on the organism level. And then you can see those activities on the level of humanity, you know, and, um, I know from my own process of, of healing and expansion and growth that I might identify something that's a problem outside me, but then what do I do? You know, of course I want to name it, speak to it, put effort and action into addressing it in ways that I can to, to make it right in alignment with the truth that I see, but not just external. I have to go, Oh, in what ways is that living in me? And how do I heal that in here as, as, as a participant in the healing mm-hmm. that needs to mm-hmm. happen on the collective? So um, individuals need a lot of support, right? Like the model of two therapists with one client with severe PTSD, I think is 
appropriate because the level of complexity and developmental trauma and um, the the attuned presence of two people and helping navigate that space coming from a state of severe PTSD is is I think really important to the healing. But then I think we can look at where, wherever people are, you know, at, at models of doing this in group settings or integrating this work in group settings and starting to create that, that fabric. And it's one of the pillars of the, the care model for Numinous, which is uh, connection, which is about creating community and create and relationship centered care, the quality of our relationships and the fact that isolation leads to suffering, depression, you know, we are we are warm, squishy mammals. We are not meant to be as isolated as we are in our society and from one another. And so I see that, um, you know, as we proceed with this, you know, I hope that we'll certainly within Numinous, we're working to create models mm-hmm. that will facilitate connections, mm-hmm. people to share their healing experiences, to inspire and be inspired, to find support, to, to find common humanity, uh, to come out of isolation. And, and I think that will ripple out to a more mm-hmm. collective level. Hmm. That sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so actually, let's, let's keep going on this. Um, because... Yeah, I wanted to ask you earlier about, you know, an understanding of psychedelics that goes beyond psychological flexibility and neuroplasticity, Mm -hmm. or at least those models for me aren't sort of capturing the full range of psychedelic experiences. So for example, you did mention like MDMA, which I think, Mm -hmm. you know, nowadays is recognized as a psychedelic, but um, does sort of act differently. Uh, mm-hmm. Some people call it an empathogen. You mentioned intactogen, which I understand mm-hmm. is a, a sort of a synonym. Mm-hmm. And so that's slightly different, but also very interesting. And then something else we sort of have referenced obliquely uh, so far is the notion of like an entheogen, right? Um, psychedelics mm-hmm. um, creating mystical experiences or encounters with the divine Um how does that fit with this sort of like neuroplasticity or um, like psychedelic flexibility model? Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'll just leave it there. Good luck. (laughs) No, thank you. Thank you for circling back to that mechanistically because I agree it is absolutely a a big, big part we haven't unpacked yet. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, our colleague, Dr. Adela France, she recently published an article on the dimensions of emotion and spirituality um, emotional mm-hmm. experience and spiritual experience. Um, it was a qualitative paper. Um, can't remember the name of it, but just recently published like last week, um, as, um, dimensions to be considering as we look at the mechanistic actions and the powerful change mm-hmm. that can be engendered by psychedelics. Um, and, you know, that, that spiritual piece, um, when we come back to that person-centered approach and, you know, the inner healer and, and how to hold the space, uh, well, you know, it's definitely not about transposing our spiritual ideals or anything on a person, but yet, um, hopefully, you know, one of the domains of being a competent psychedelic therapist, as outlined by Janice Phelps in her 2017 paper on essential therapist competencies mm. is something mm-hmm. called spiritual intelligence. Mm. And that as, as as guides or as therapists, we've had reference experiences for ourselves of 
the the mystical or of maybe what we might call I mean language never does it justice but universal love or um you know god right call it what you will the nameless the formless non-dual uh you know that having had some reference some taste enables us that we've arrived at personally enables us to hold the space that all other beings by their very nature of, of being a, a, an alive human might have their own version of this type of awareness. And when I reflect on how much that means and uh, translates into the quality of my own life, you know, one of my mystical experiences was actually a near death experience. I was capsized out of a raft in Thailand in 2019 in a class three or four rapid got tossed down. And then all of a sudden I wasn't moving anymore and all the water was moving over me and the surface of the water was way above my head. And I went through the whole process of like struggling to survive, trying to get myself unstuck, realizing that wasn't happening um, all the way through. And to what to, happened? What happened? <laughs> well, yeah, you know, just for the listeners to not be concerned, they had a safety kayaker. They saw where I went under. They figured where I was pinned. The kayaker had to, in the rapid, maneuver onto the rock that I was pinned against, get out of his kayak, and pull me out. And he had to make oh a couple of attempts. But, you know, in the time that it took, um, I was literally, it was like strobing. Um, you know, it, it, it was like, experience stratified and there was the animal body struggling to survive. And then there was this emotional plane where I was feeling tremendous grief about my mother and my father and all the people who loved me. And also this disbelief. I had just graduated from family medicine about to start my career that like I'm dying now, Ugh. you know, and, and then, um, and then, but this kind of strobe like effect of peace, that started to strobe more and more until the strobing <sighs> became consistent. And I think that's what a lot of people feel is like this white light or whatever. And then my awareness in that moment is, oh, it's all a dream. And then the second awareness that was that lo only love is real and that my body was going to be gone. Everything I ever did in my life, all the stuff, everything, it's dust. It's it's. It's all a dream. But what was going to carry on over to wherever was next was how I loved and how I participated in love in my human life. And so, you know, profound. I mean, that that guides my life now. And we know that psychedelics can engender this level of a profound experience for people that can be personally meaningful. To me, that was deeply spiritual. And we could certainly explain it on the level of like, mm -hmm. and my mm -hmm. nervous system went into a dorsal vagal state, which was like yes. a collapsed state, and therefore everything felt dreamlike and whatever. But it doesn't matter how we explain it. It's it's what stayed with me. And I think that's, you know, so 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 the spiritual piece, I think, is huge. I know that personally, 
and and we can hold space that people can have this level of of powerful awareness for themselves um and then yeah with with oh, maybe i'll just pause there for a moment <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 you know in my perspective it's it's part of being human that we can have this kind of awareness um yet the layers of suffering and trauma, you know, and neglect and interpersonal abuses and um, just pain can make it so painfully difficult to remember these types of truths. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's where, like, to, to return to MDMA as an empathogen. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You know, and pathogen, what does it do? It calms our fear centers in our brain, calms the amygdala. You know, we know that MDMA causes decreased uh, connectivity between um, the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex and increased connectivity between the amygdala and the hippocampus, which is memory processing. And um, so we're getting like functional MRI sort of explanations for what's going on. But then just phenomenologically, individual, this is why MDMA assisted therapy is a breakthrough treatment for PTSD, because individuals can approach horrifically painful content that's part of their trauma and not go into those survival states of fear and shutdown where if you were to do that without MDMA, it's, you just can't therapeutically progress because when you're in those states, it's, it's, it's recycling that trauma again and again. And a lot of people with trauma go for talk therapy. They talk about what happened. They leave feeling horrible because they're just all of the implicit felt states that accompany those memories are just coming up and not necessarily resolving. And so when you have MDMA, that's an enabling not only to access that sort of content in this much more um, approachable way and the emotion that is attendant there, it's also increasing self-compassion, trust with the people that you're with, and then this tremendous ability to be witnessed, you know, in that. And that's where, you know, if we want to take our conversation into the interpersonal realm, that level of witnessing, of being seen and attuned with, um, it's, it's so important developmentally for our health as, as children and infants. Yet many mm-hmm. of us lack that, which sets us up, sets us up. It makes us vulnerable for, for things like PTSD later in life. Um, but it's, uh, I think there's so much happening, uh, mechanistically on the level of the interpersonal, as well as just the, the, the increased range of our optimal arousal zone, our window of tolerance to actually process stuff that is mm-hmm. otherwise just so overwhelmingly painful to do. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, let's come back to entheogens in a sec. Let's stay with the empathogens. Uh, um, maybe you've covered this, but uh, I just want to make sure we're capturing this notion of like how relational um, like MDMA assisted psychotherapy is or why you think that, um, you know, you do relational somatic therapy, why that Mm -hmm. relation piece is so important. And maybe for that matter, let's hear why the somatic piece is important as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we, um, we are born into relationship, 
right? We're wounded in relationship and profound healing happens in relationship. We can't be not in relationship. We're constantly relating to our environment, uh, to one another. And as they say in many indigenous wisdom traditions, all our relations. And, um, and there's an honoring of that. And uh, so from the relational somatic lens, it's understanding a lot of the work that's been outlined, um, like by Dan Siegel in interpersonal neurobiology, right? Acknowledging that our brains are wired for social connectivity. We have something called mirror neurons, which plays a huge role in our uh, capacity to feel with another. And um, a big part of, of healing and also healthy development is this sense of feeling felt by someone. Um, mm-hmm. And so when we're, when we're young, we're not born with the capacity to self-regulate or even to name our emotional states and develop, you know, emotional literacy um, or intelligence. We need to learn that and we need to learn that through attuned reciprocal inter- interactions with our caregivers where they come down to our level, mimic our facial expressions or respond in some way of like, oh, yeah, that hurts, doesn't it? And then it's like, yeah, and then and then soothing and comforting. And then we learn, oh, I can feel pain and then I can come back to feeling okay. And like our nervous system gets develops kind of like flexibility and range by through rupture and repair. Like we're not always perfectly attuned with, but if we've got caring people around us that come back and say, hey, you know, mommy was really stressed. I shouldn't have yelled at you like that. I'm sorry, sweetheart, you know, and, and, and repair like that. We even we also socially learn and form relational templates about what's even possible in relationship to other humans. And sadly, many people don't have that. They, they, they have neglect. They, they have uncaring, you know, wounded people as the ones who are kind of fostering their, their rearing environment, which, you know, maybe if we lived more in community, young children would have access to other, other safer adults that would buffer that somewhat. But we live in like to a large degree, nuclear families too, where it's, it's so much this intense relationship with like one or two adults. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. so that all impacts our, our development, our capacity to self-regulate our emotions and our nervous system, and even to articulate what we're feeling and to actually be in touch with our embodiment, which is our felt sense, which is our lived experience. And, um, you know, uh, the, so that's where the somatic piece comes in. Soma meaning body. We, we feel emotions in the body. Emotions aren't a concept, right? And, um, so therefore in order to, actually empathize with others and and even connect with our own intuition or you know visceral senses of of um um how to navigate uh, the world requires sort of a, a level of of capacity for interoception which is like that inner felt sense there's parts of there's the insula there's parts of our brain that are very much the the parts that register that kind of information and with trauma it's understandable we disconnect because it's too painful. But because of neuroplasticity and because we can learn at any stage of our lives, we can come back into ourselves. I definitely followed that trajectory in my own healing. Now I'm, you know, super embodied and things like yoga and expressive dance and just having uh, connections and friendships in my life where I can feel and express and be seen and heard and held, you know, this is all, it's, it's all such a beautiful dimension of humanity. 
but one that I think our society and even our learning systems and everything just isn't necessarily supporting optimally. So that somatic therapy, you know, let's say when you have um, an insight of something, you know, from a somatic lens, even if let's say it's even a positive insight, we can deepen a person's um, Mm -hmm. awareness of that by going, oh, tell me more. Do you feel that somewhere in your body when you think about that thing? Mm -hmm. Or as Mm -hmm. you see that image, are there any sensations you're noticing? And it starts to help connect that wiring and also bring that experience into an embodied, really lived experience, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I think has a has the potential to stay, you know, to mm-hmm. really anchor and then be mm-hmm. returned to consciously over time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that's um, a lot of the power of, you know, these contemporary approaches to psychotherapy that are, are bringing more of the body in. And it doesn't mean like body work. A lot of people think somatic mm-hmm. therapy is like hands-on massage or something. Mm-hmm. No, it, mm-hmm. it's just having, it's very mindfulness-based and mm-hmm. it's curiosity and it's helping to give language to and resonate with what an individual is experiencing and really like elaborating that to include the felt perception and then to use the skills of understanding trauma to help people like pendulate and, um, you know, you know, dip your toe in and come back out and be resourced instead of having to be flooded by, Mm -hmm. you know, going straight into something that's Mm -hmm. really um, painful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I do want to talk about how mindfulness fits in the mix here. I think Mm -hmm. I have an opening in a little bit. So, um, let's come back to the entheogens for a second. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not uncommon for people to refer to psychedelic experiences in these terms. In fact, there's this whole notion of the mystical experience that actually has a lot of really interesting empirical work behind it. I think the mystical experiences questionnaire was created at Johns Hopkins, and it's actually a really important, kind of variable, I think, in predicting the impact of psychedelic therapies. Um, so I don't know, maybe in a way it's, it's intuitive, but like, man, what, what, what does mystical experience mean? Or to say that we're encountering God or something divine uh, under the influence of psychedelic, that's a tough one because, I mean, bringing in two very, very complex things. What is God and what is mystical or divine? And then Mm -hmm. how the hell are psychedelics um, kind of enhancing our access to that or amplifying that capacity of ours? Mm -hmm. I think I think of it more as um, being um, like having a sense of awe amplified in my experience. Um, But what is your best guess about, you know, is it related to this, uh, kind of enriching of connectivity in our brains or something about neuroplasticity? What is it about these psychedelics that create these divine experiences? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because even the language mystical experience and the language mm-hmm. used to designate the different categories of mystical experiences, like in the MEQ, like there's mm-hmm. a sense of awe, there's um, the no- a noetic sense um, uh, but it's all 
you know, it's interesting because when you give language to something, it already starts to yes. define it, frame it. Yep. Mm-hmm. and frame it. And then that can become an expectation and that people mm-hmm. like measure their experience against. And so that's sort of coming back to how important it is to kind of hold things in a very open frame um, of possibility with some reference ourselves for what, what that could be like. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think anytime you talk about a phenomenon, you can apply, you know, any given lens to it. You can look at the connectivity that's happening in the brain. Like you can go, mm-hmm. okay, these states are associated with decreased connectivity in the default mode network, which is associated with our narrative sense of identity or perhaps the ego, quote unquote, and that's going mm-hmm. offline. Therefore, you know, we can theorize. Um, at some point, I think, you know, it's all interesting and, we like to explain things. Um, and you know, the how of it though, does it really matter? Um, hmm. I think, well, it, it, it uh, mattered earlier when we were talking about psychological flexibility and yeah. neuroplasticity. Well, and I think it's important to, because of, you know, using the language of scientific investigation and the scientific, um, arrival at certain truths to support moving forward in our dominant healthcare paradigm with things that are drastically challenging to the status mm-hmm. quo, I think it's really, yes, it's important in that context to, to make these maps and to back them up by evidence and empirical, mm-hmm. you know, uh, stuff. Um, I think more, I'm thinking more when it boils down to the individual having that mm-hmm. experience mm-hmm. phenomenologically. You know, I, I think I, I really like that the construct of the noetic. No, mm-hmm. noetic is uh it's just like truth it's just like you know that mm-hmm. this is true not because you read it by some trusted source or because there's a bunch of evidence to support it it's just an inner knowing and this is mm-hmm. rely this reliably happens with with psychedelics um for folks that enter these kind of quote-unquote mystical states mm-hmm. and um i think that is something really powerful because especially when we're helping people, you know, in prep and integration to hold a frame of, you know, um, self-reference and that empowerment to actually know what's true for you. What are your values? You know, what is important in this very life, this precious life to you? Um, that, uh, like one of the, like the noetic awareness I had of the truth that love mm-hmm. is the only thing that's mm-hmm. real. You know, mm-hmm. I can say that to people, but it's really just the in the intimacy of my inner experience with myself that it's like to every fiber mm-hmm. of my existence, mm-hmm. I know that's true for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to say it's true for anyone else. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of where um, the noetic, I think, as a part of the mystical is profoundly powerful at connecting people to their own wisdom, to their own hearts. Um, you know, in mindfulness, we say, right, like wisdom is, is inherent, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're, and, and we do these mindfulness practices to create conditions such that you're tapping into your inherent wisdom. And so, um, so however that feels for someone mm-hmm. or whatever that looks like for someone, uh, I think, you know, it's, it has 
the potential for such merit and, and beauty, really. I love this mm-hmm. construct of beauty too, you know, and I love that Adele LaFrance is also bringing in the construct of love back into what we're mm-hmm. doing in psychotherapy as well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, but yeah. <laughs> so knowing that, um, in five years, uh, if anyone ever listens to this at that point, I'll sound like a cave person. Um, <laughs> I, I, I can't help but indulge this impulse to, actually uh speak to my own sort of mystical experiences mm. and and you know some attempt at a map about what's going on mm-hmm. in some vague sort of neurobiological sense and i also think it's it's intimately tied to mindfulness which which um i think we could kind of jam on for a second here mm-hmm. you know this notion of the reducing valve i think it was huxley mm-hmm. um and the sense that we we sort of go about our lives with a very, very, very like simplified, impoverished, reduced um, experience of, of the infinite amount of information that our brains could be processing in any given Which time. Which is very practical. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. If you walk around being like completely blown away by how gorgeous the tree bark is every time you pass a tree, you're probably not going to be able to pay your mortgage or eat or whatever. Um, and yet, uh, psychedelics kind of... Um, strip away that, that, um, inhibitory sort of control of our senses and, uh, our meaning making, um, and it's pure speculation, but it does seem to be at least hypothetically tied to this opening up of new neural pathways that you were talking about before. So all of a sudden mm-hmm. new possibilities, new things to perceive, new connections to make between things that we're perceiving. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's just overwhelmingly something. It could be overwhelmingly beautiful. It could be mm-hmm. overwhelmingly terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, in my experience, and, and you know, uh, I take your point about the noetic quality and that it, it, it needs to feel true experientially to for it to um, sort of um, carry weight for anybody. But um, that's been my... Um, closest reference for the mystical experience. And it's a mm-hmm. powerful sense of awe. It's a power sense of like revelation mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. everything that I don't normally attend to and just the overwhelming totally. complexity and, and yeah. um, beauty of it, etc. And And that's the closest I can come to really feeling like I'm in uh, contact with God or, or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever that refers to. And of course there is a, a really interesting tradition of, um, using psychedelic compounds to connect with the sacred or the divine or the mystical. And mm-hmm. um, that's my best guess uh, mm-hmm. in terms of how that's sort of playing out um, psychologically or something like that. Yeah. Um, and then I, I actually think this is um, unfortunately probably just a metaphor, but there's some evidence that this whole like reducing valve thing or like the, the sort of like stripping away of ordinary ways of thinking and feeling is tied to the default mode network, right? The default mode network is like, is like tying all this together and um, holding together a sense of self. And what's super interesting in this literature is that both psychedelic experiences and uh, meditation experiences show uh, down regulation of the default mode network. Oh yeah. Um, 
so yeah, I, I'm curious if you if you buy that default mode network theory uh, and this whole notion of ego dissolution being tied to that. I mean, I think there's truth to it. Um, like everything, it's going to not be like the the one and only ultimate answer yeah. or explanation. Um, I think it even you know default mode network aside. Um, even just what we were talking about earlier about relaxed priors and the rebus mm-hmm, model and mm-hmm. just all of these new possibilities opening up, you know, you can really, you could take it to, you know, Buddhist philosophy here where when we examine ourselves in meditation, we notice that we have patterns of thought that repeat that these patterns of thought that translate into our words, our actions, our behaviors are absolutely conditioned, right? We're walking around balls of conditioned behavior and, and thinking. And um, that, uh, so to, to parallel that to this reducing valve metaphor, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, we're walking around now, you know, as adults with a, a reducing valve that has practical uses for navigating the world, um, that, but that also can uh, and does get in the way of our, uh, from a Buddhist lens, you know, liberation, liberating insight. And um, therefore, you know, there's a path, you know, in, in Buddhism, there's the four noble truths, <laughs> the truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, the truth of the the path of, the, of Buddha nature, and then the path to liberation and, and the realization of that. And, um, you know, I think that if you've looked in the eyes of a baby, right? A human being born fresh, you know, with, that doesn't have all the layers of conditioning that we carry with us as adults. I certainly, you know, I mean, I see quote unquote God when I look in anyone's eyes, but there's mm-hmm. a, you, there is a, there is something very beautiful and innocent and open and incredible about the eyes of a young child. And to, to take it to the neurobiological level, yeah, they've got this multiplicity of connections that are possible, just mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. we do when we're in a psychedelic state. I mean, mm-hmm. I wish I could return to a moment of when I was three and navigating the world. I'm sure it would feel like a psychedelic state, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I think that if we can really just have the humility to see and understand and know that we carry with us perceptual biases that shape what we see, the truths mm-hmm. that we then reinforce through um, uh, perceptual bias and cognitive bias, right? We see what we're looking for. That even happens on the level of the quantum, whether you're expecting a wave or a particle, that's what you see, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that to me brings forward this tremendous humility and then again, this tremendous awe of, you know, I, I do experience, you know, when I go for a run here in the, the Pacific Spirit Park out at Spanish Banks, it's one of the things I love to do. You know, the way that I take in the green through my eyes and the way that I stop and, and appreciate the, the beauty of the tree bark, you know, that 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 sort of we t- in mindfulness we call it beginner's mind right like seeing mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. fresh eyes mm-hmm. that it actually doesn't stop me from paying my 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 rent or taking care mm-hmm. of my bills because i'm not doing that in that moment in that moment i'm running in the forest mm-hmm. so 
I think that there's actually space for us to be perceiving, you know, more openly in this way um, and where we can still function in the world. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, to return to the um, the awareness that you that you mentioned about meditators and how the state of their brain is like very similar to the state under a classical Mm -hmm. psychedelic. Yeah, you know, meditators who've been practicing for a long time, they are just kind of living in in non-dual awareness. Mm -hmm. And yet there is an ego structure and a functioning ego that is there to navigate the world, too. So I think it's and as opposed to or, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, but Mm -hmm. yeah, I Mm -hmm. think that that awe. And it, it just opens so many doors of curiosity. And, and to me, just a joie de vivre. Like, wow, mm-hmm. what a miracle. We're here mm-hmm. humaning together and like being so <laughs> freaking curious about what it really all is, you know. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and these psychedelics can um, be very, very powerful in helping us explore those questions for ourselves. Mm-hmm. I don't get to spend much time with Buddhist Devon, but I, I wish I did. <laughs> it's been a big it's been a big part of my path you know i moved Uh from sort of yoga and more vedantic philosophy and then i discovered uh shambhala lineage chogyam trungpa i read sacred path of the warrior and was like "Ooh, i want to sit and meditate and then um found my way to a buddhist teacher named greg kramer who lives on orcas island uh, Mm -hmm. in washington Mm -hmm. and he developed this method called insight dialogue which is an explicitly relational path of mm-hmm. awakening from a Buddhist frame. And so I've been to, I think, seven or eight or nine insight dialogue retreats, which are like silent meditation retreats. But then you sit and you practice meditating together in a very like structured context for a period of time in the morning, in the afternoon, everything else, noble silence. There's lots of solo sits, but it's, um, yeah, I, I love, I love Buddhist. I love that Buddhist philosophy is kind of, you know, it outlines all these things, but then ultimately just says, you know, see for yourself. And mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and a lot mm-hmm. of the things that it outlines to me in my own experience are very relevant to my happiness and well-being. Like mm-hmm. there's there's something called the four immeasurables and they're, you know, karuna, which is compassion, um, metta, loving kindness, um, upeka, which is equanimity, and then mudita, my favorite one, which is sympathetic joy, which is experiencing joy at the good fortune of another. Like when mm-hmm. we live our lives from that, there's like so much joy, right? You see people mm-hmm, having mm-hmm. good fortune and you're happy for them as opposed to envious or whatever. So mm-hmm, all, mm-hmm. all of the stuff I've tried on from my Buddhist learnings has always resonated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Listen, yeah. We're, we're coming up on an hour and a half and I'm sure you've oh, got wow. a lot of other stuff to do today. And, and I'm mm-hmm. just really conscious of your energy and um, that you've given us and just that don't want to, you know, pull too much of it or deplete too much of it. Maybe one last question. Is that okay sure. with you? Oh right. yeah. And I don't feel depleted at all. In fact, Joe, I'm just so happy yeah. for our dialogue. It's, it's, it's yeah. enlivening. <laughs> it's awesome. This has been awesome for sure. Appreciate it. Um, so, you know, you and I are both, uh, mindfulness teachers and, um, you know, have a lot of conviction about, and you've, you've made it very explicit in our conversation, just how important it is as a tool and as a, as a way of 
being and and something really great that we can teach our clients and patients. Mm-hmm. Can can we get a little more granular granular and tell me what is it about your mindfulness practice or anyone's mindfulness practice that's especially relevant for psychedelic assisted psychotherapy? Mm-hmm. I think that mindfulness can be such an important contributor to set, right? The mm-hmm. mindset. I, I was fortunate when I first experienced any kind of psychedelic, I was already a meditator. I already had established mm-hmm. and practiced mindfulness, had already had practice in observing pleasant, unpleasant, finding my way to kind of navigating both without getting, sh- you know, pushed off my center too far. Um, so I think that can be a great aspect of, of preparation, even just this notion of being curious about experience and observing our, our embodied experience of all the dimensions of experiencing that we learn that we are experiencing as we practice mindfulness meditation. So, um, so definitely can be helpful in preparation. And then uh, certainly it can be a practice. Um, there are many practices that people might do, but any practice kind of done mindfully in alignment with the, the things that people really want to anchor from their experience, their learning and healing with psychedelics, um, mindful practice can reinforce um, just the uh, continued capacity to be curious about our experience, to investigate, mm-hmm. to stay present to our emotions as they come and go. Um, and it's interesting because after the, you know, 1960s big bloom um, in, you know, Western society of LSD and psychedelics, there, that's when there was also this parallel um, just looking to Eastern mystical or wisdom traditions and people meditating together and um, spiritual communities popping up. I think many of us, you know, who are, you know, white settlers, you know, that have come and, and colonized to Turtle Island, I think many of us are almost like cultural refugees. I certainly haven't felt very connected to the the traditions of my ancestors in, in Scotland and, and England and and therefore, you know, opening to all these new dimensions of my being and looking for a kind of a framework for that to land for me. Mm-hmm. You know, we've talked about what, what frameworks um, those, those have been. But um, so whether it's, it's mindfulness or uh, any sort of contemplative practice from whatever tradition, I think it can really serve folks to, to deepen and to integrate to have the space to return as well to those meaningful peak states, people can get addicted or, you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. really want to just go back to that state mm-hmm. uh, when they were under the acute effects of a psychedelics. But when you really sit and be present and, and be curious and invoke, huh, can I remember even 10% of what that was like in my felt experience mm-hmm. and like return to that and recognize that it's still there. It hasn't gone anywhere. And the, mm-hmm. the, and the relevance of that to me is actually still present. It's not like I have to go back to it. I think mindfulness and contemplative practice can be very powerful for supporting people mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. really stay connected and grounded to what they learn and what they value on the other side of these peak experiences. Couldn't agree more. We talked about that, uh, the fact that, you know, we could take this neuroplasticity in any variety of directions. And 
and you talked about uh, psychedelics not being a panacea. There are a mm-hmm. lot of risks and there's a dark mm-hmm. side, right? And we heard a little bit, uh, an example of a bit of a dark side this fall. It's two very well-known psychedelic, like seniors, uh, Aaron Grossbard and Francoise Bourzat, um, involved in a scandal with one of their trainees, um, crossing sexual boundaries. Um, I just wonder, like, what's your kind of point of view on this? And, and in particular, this notion that we might be involved in collective psychedelic stewardship here, that there's this precious opportunity um, and risks, pitfalls on all sides. Um, I wonder how you see that uh, and feel free to go into as much detail about that scandal or any other um, that you see fit. Yeah. Well, I think I would just prefer to speak in general terms that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in any helping profession where there's a power dynamic, which is any helping profession, there's risk for Mm -hmm. abuses of power. So, you know, psychologists and counselors and psychiatrists and doctors and all these individuals have historically, uh, unfortunately, um, taken advantage of their power and enacted um, heinous abuses on the vulnerable people that come to them for for help. And so um, it's nothing new that psychedelics is is kind of bringing to the surface the risk involved when you have power mm-hmm. dynamics, mm-hmm. right? And so therefore, our efforts need to be around protecting the vulnerable, um, ethical guidelines. We have those ethical guidelines, for example, in medicine. Um, if I were to have sexual relations with a patient, um, I would lose my license, right? So there are consequences. Mm-hmm. But we also mm-hmm. have a punitive system where if someone does commit one of these, um, uh, uh, uh what do we want to call them? Crimes. I mean, there's a number of words we could use. Um, it's kind of like, well, you, you lose your license and you're done and often we'll just blackball you. And honestly, I think scapegoat people because I think where we need to go where, with where psychedelics is taking us in the way that we're looking at um, safety and ethical transgressions is is getting a little bit more curious about the humanity of people, whether they're in, you know, whatever side of the power equation they're on, but -hmm, especially mm -hmm. those in positions of power and what are the vulnerabilities there and what are the ways that that person has not had Mm. the support they need um, Mm -hmm. to, to make the right decisions in navigating a certain circumstance, what, what is unhealed and what is the dialogue about what we might learn and, um, and more of like a restorative justice process and, also, um, yeah, just not being so black and white about it when it happens. Um, so, you hmm. know, again, psychedelics take everything to, you know, the, the penultimate level with respect to a person's vulnerability, which is mm-hmm. why, you know, I'm so committed in my, my role with Numinous and the programs we're developing and the therapist training to really help the therapists and people in in those privileged positions understand Mm -hmm. the nature of the vulnerability here and the nuance of how to hold yourself in integrity in that container. And even Mm -hmm. though it might not be actually abusing uh, a client, you know, even just being uh, the parts of ourselves, which we all have them that we're unaware of and that we might, might get activated or triggered by our client's process 
if we're not able to acknowledge, recognize, shelve that and return to holding space for them, and instead we start kind of enacting some of our own stuff into that space when they're wide open, that's also potentially harmful. It's not mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. far spectrum as actual, you know, sexual indiscretion and stuff, but it's, um, we have to really hold this with preciousness, with reverence, and with utmost um, ethical and, and integral awareness collectively and with ourselves if we find ourselves wanting to step into the role as guide or as therapist in, in this mm-hmm. format. Cool. Thank you for that. Yeah. Thanks for All the right. question. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, why don't we leave it there? Lots of that. other stuff to do today. Appreciate it yeah. so much. Thank you so uh, much, Devin. My pleasure, Joe. So nice spending time with you today. Likewise. Thanks for listening to the Mindspace podcast. I hope it was inspiring. If you feel the world could use a little more Mindspace, please consider supporting the podcast. The best way to do that is to leave a review on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you listen, or share your favorite episode on social media. Thanks and be well. Thank you.